Tēnā koutou, no mai, hi to mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. This morning, Nationals leader Christopher Luxon says he's the man with the economic chops to tame inflation. Then, what's next for He Pua Pua? The government fronts on its plan and the future of co-governance in New Zealand. And do you know how infrastructure projects always tend to go over budget and over time? Yeah, we're going to show you this prime example. Gosh, when it was first mooted way back in, uh, I guess, 2003-ish, I think the very first budgets were around 30 to 50 million, and now the estimated cost is 185, so um, it's changed a lot. 6.9%. If you've bought groceries, filled up your car, or tried to run a business any time recently, you didn't need to wait for Thursday's Consumer Price Index to appreciate the scale of inflation in New Zealand, a 30-year high. So what to do? National Party leader Christopher Luxon says the government bears responsibility for some of the inflation and responsibility for fixing it. This is our first interview for 2022. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, Jack. Good to be with you. Your job is to oppose and to propose, to Correct. critique, but also to offer up some solutions. For months now, your party has blamed the government for the inflation, or at least some of the inflation that we're experiencing right now. This is what you said after the CPI figures were released on Thursday. The reality is the government has had a massive increase in government spending since it came to power. The spending is up over 68% since this government came to power. Some of it was necessary, absolutely, with respect to COVID. But there is an assumption that every dollar spent is really wisely spent, and that's not the case. There is good and there is bad spending, and there is wasteful spending. So specifically, what government spending has driven inflation? Well, look, I, f I think the first thing, Jack, I'd say is most Kiwis are incredibly concerned about inflation getting a grip on the economy because it means that their living standards are really impacted. You know, when the prices are going up, everyone can see that. When Kiwis can see their wages aren't keeping up, they know they're going backwards, they know they're worse off. And when inflation gets its grip into an economy, it's a really serious thing. And the sooner you deal with it, the better. So what we're saying to the government is, look, you can blame it on international factors as much as you like, mm. and yes, there is a component of that. Mm. But our trading partners are, in fact, performing much better and have much lower levels of inflation than New Zealand. So let's control the bit that we can control, which is domestic inflation. And within that, I think there's you know, five things the government should be doing that they're not doing at the moment that they could be doing to take control of. Uh, well, let's not talk about the future plans just yet, although we will get to that. Let's talk about government spending that has led to the inflation we're experiencing right now. 6.9%, a record for specifically what government spending that your party opposed has led to that inflation? Well, look, I think there's, the reality is this. The government is spending $128 billion in government spending. Mm -hmm. It is up over $52 billion mm -hmm. from 2017. So a massive increase in government so spending. So what do you, what have you opposed? So what I would say to you is that the, the, the role is to go through all of that existing $100 billion mm -hmm. plus of spending line by line and identify the wasteful spending that's months, going on. For months, you and your party have said that government spending to this point has caused inflation. I'm asking you for specific so, so let examples. Me give you some some examples. Right. So $100 million on a slow train from Hamilton okay, let's that break has that higher down. emissions, that actually has you know, longer yeah. journey times, not good. Okay, so $100 million, you just said $128 billion Correct. is Crown core expenditure for the year. So $100 million represents 0.07% of government. Let me give you some more. $1.8 billion on 14,000 more bureaucrats, and yet we haven't got better health, 
education, transport, infrastructure, poverty outcomes with that investment. $1.8 billion. Okay, so still... Let me give you some more. What's some more? Less than 1%. Yeah, yep. I do. Yep. $1.9 billion on mental health, and yet the Mental Health Foundation... Over how many General years? ...says we haven't actually got an over how many improvement years? there. If you just think about what the investment... $1.9 billion over how many years? Over, over the term of this government. Over five years? Yep, over the that, term. That was the commitment. So yes. that's $400 million a year. Sure. Okay, so, so let me keep million, going. No, no, four, four, so that's 0.35%. Yep. $500 million on a brand new health restructure at a time of a pandemic when our health system is incredibly stressed. $500 million, less, th less than half a percent. Yep, that's going to add tremendous amount of um, you know middle management, but not a lot of frontline services. Not all of that money's been committed, and that's less than half a percent. And what is about to be committed is up to anywhere from 10 not to $29 billion dollars of light rail. Talking about this point, what I, I want to know specific examples, really big spend, well, I've, I've, massive I've, spend. No, no, you haven't. You've, you've given me you've given me examples that amount to less than two percent. But what I'd say to you, Jack, is what's missing is a financial a discipline of financial discipline, right? We're missing that in this government. What I'd say is missing are specific examples. I mean, this has been the the backbone of your attack line for the last well, few months. I've got a whole page examples. of examples here where you say that government spending has led to inflation. I'm sitting here asking for examples. You're and giving me you... you're giving me infantile. We, we, we amounts of government let me spending. give you a sense. We've spent $5 billion on education and we've got worse outcomes for that money. We only have 60% of our kids going to regular school. So do you oppose $5 billion for no, education? No, I'm not saying we, we need to spend the money, but you need to get so outcomes you do need to spend and, the money. and get delivery for it. And if you were to go through all of the $100 billion worth of money that the government already spends, I can tell you what Grant Robinson needs to be doing, what Bill English would have been doing, what Nicola Willis will be doing, is telling every minister to go through their budget line by line. Mm. There is dumb stuff. There is wasteful spending going on. There are things that are working exceptionally well. We should continue to fund and actually strengthen the funding there. There are other things that aren't working well. So here's the thing. I'm asking you for that wasteful spending. I'm asking you for examples of government spending that your party has opposed that has led to inflation. And at the moment, despite hammering this attack line for months, well, I disagree you, with can't you. Give me, you can't give me I, examples I that have. amount to more than 1% or 2% of but government spending. But you're telling spending. me that $100 million wouldn't make a difference to our healthcare system uh, that instead of spending on a, on a train that's not working. What I'm saying you're is... You're telling me that 1.9 billion on mental health that hasn't delivered a single outcome so, is not is, is okay. okay. So, so what, okay. as a percentage of government spending, what is 100 million dollars for a train to Hamilton? Well, it's a small. I get, I get it's is a piece 0.07%. No, that. I mean you're you're the economy guy. Yeah. You, you are the guy who who has says that your business background allows you to understand this stuff better than anyone else. But here you are, and you can't give me I, specific examples of government spending that has led to 6.9% inflation. But, but, Jack, what I'm saying to you is this is a government that believes if we announce money, if we spend money, they actually don't focus on outcomes and delivery. And all I'm saying to you is there's a discipline where we don't have targets on that government spending anymore. We don't actually seem to have any financial discipline. A dollar is a dollar. There is good and bad spending within all of that. And each minister needs to be all over their detail of their budgets. I'm sure I've given you some agree. examples. I appreciate you don't think $100 million matters, but it does matter because it actually speaks to a culture that we actually don't manage money well. It's not about what I think matters. It's, it's what $100 million represents as a percentage of Crown spending. When you say the government and their reckless spending have led to inflation, $100 million is 0.07%. It is a drop in the ocean. Yeah, Let's but, move on. But, Let's but move Jack, on. All I'd say to you is small, small actions make up to make a big difference. Well, you and when you've got a culture where you're happy to let $100 million slide, you're happy to say a $800 million walking and cycling path is a brilliant idea, and it's not. How much did they spend on the cycling path? $51 million Fif over is what? four months. As a, yeah, OK, so that's 0.05% of government issue. spending. 
behind that is why did the government think that was a stellar idea? Why do they think they would spend $800 this million of taxpayers' money? You, you, yours is the party that says irresponsible spending has caused inflation. So high income, medium income, low income New Zealanders, who is being most squeezed by the cost of living at the moment? Well, I think all New Zealanders are certainly being squeezed. Obviously, low and middle income earners. I would put it to you that the, mid, the squeeze middle, as I would say, someone on fifty-five to $80,000, mm. they are the you know, median sort of incomes in New Zealand. Uh, they're doing it incredibly tough. They're not rich sitting in this country. They're not getting government assistance or help. It's the young couple that came up to me at the markets the other day. They're building their first home in Pocono. They are you know, average income earners. They've got good jobs. Mm. But their builder had just gone up 20%. They've got the rising costs of everything else, and now they're sitting there redesigning that first time as they mm. try and get it back within their budget. Okay. So it's, it's, it's the squeeze middle that's doing it really tough. Well, let's talk about the squeeze middle. If you are Prime Minister and your tax cuts get passed as some sort of a solution to inflation, how much more money would someone on a median income, an average income in New Zealand, be getting every week? What they'd be getting is about $1,600 for an average household income over what a year. Would, what would it, so a single worker would get about 15 bucks a week, 800 bucks a year, right? Correct, for, for 800 dollars for an average, average income. Yeah. So yeah. if you were Prime Minister, how much, money would, how much more money would you get a year? Well, let me tell you what we're thinking about with respect to tax, because I think it's been mixed, you know, the drinks have been mixed a bit. The first thing I'd say to you is what we we're proposing, in the spirit of, well, it's going to pose, mm. the government's going to propose mm -hmm. an idea, is that over the term of this government, inflation's up 12%. Grant Robertson's collected an extra $12.5 billion mm. worth of income tax as a consequence of that. All we were saying was, hey, listen, why don't we take the tax thresholds up by that 11 or 12%? That's not all you were saying, though, is no, it? No, but listen, yeah. that's a short-term solution. Say, in this budget in May, you could go off and do that. And actually, that would be a really good thing to give Kiwis back some money. I appreciate it doesn't solve all the challenges that they've got, but it's a start to say, we're going to give you the money in your pocket, not well, let, take let's it back not forget run. You're also scrapping the top tax bracket. So I'm going to go back to that question. Yep. You said $15 a week for someone on the median income in New $850 a year. Yeah. Yep. And if you're Prime Minister, how much more would you get a year? Well, what I'm saying to you is... No, I, no, no. That, answer that question. Well, it, it, no, well, my question... I want you to understand what we're actually proposing. I understand what you're proposing. adjusted tax threshold. And scrapping the top tax... Uh, the, the top, I'll um, come to that in a minute. No, no, no. I, I've asked you a question. Please answer it. How much more would you get per year if you're Prime Minister? I would do very well because I'm How a much high more income would you get? I don't know, but I'm above $180,000. So, so, so why does someone who earns almost half a million dollars a year as Prime Minister need a tax cut of $18,000 a year. What we're talking about here is saying we have inflation in our economy. Mm. That is the number one problem that we have to deal with in New Zealand. Mm. It is having a big impact. It's going to just, you know, it's a really big problem when it gets into it. Mm. We're saying very simply, why don't we just lift the taxation thresholds today uh, so that everyone doesn't get caught in tax yep. breaks. That's the plan for the short term. What we've also signalled is that when we get to government in our first term, we're going to unwind the tax increases that the government has passed through. Mm. There's been a number of them, Brightline and you know, interest deductibility. There's others coming, national Ta insurance, national yeah. awards, all that stuff. So, so I'm but then we'll, uh, thirdly, what I'd say, Jack, is we will go to the election with a fully costed fiscal and tax plan, and that's a more so, comprehensive So are you not planning to scrap the top tax? Yes, what I'm foreshadowing okay. Okay, to you good. is that no. that's a piece of it, but what we're saying is those where the government has added tax and costs, those are things that we haven't supported as they've been implemented so, in So to be clear, under your tax plan, Someone on the median wage in New Zealand would get about $800, $850 more a year. You as Prime Minister would get $18,000 more a year. Now, I'm going to throw a quote to you. The cost of living does disproportionately impact lower income people. That was from you. You opposed the winter energy payment. You opposed the minimum wage hike. You opposed the increase to benefits, which were all, targets, uh, which were all measures targeted at lower and middle income New Zealanders. 
but you support giving $18,000 more every year to someone on almost half a million dollars. Jack, in a time of high inflation, why wouldn't you adjust your same tax system, make no more changes to it, just lift it today? I'm asking for a short-term thing that we can do to deal with inflation, yeah, right? You're talking about the tax brackets. I'm talking about the top tax bracket that you're scrapping. So the, the, the story on no, the 39% is right. pretty simple, which is we opposed it as it came through and the government mm. implemented it in this parliament. And our view is very simple. We want Kiwis to be able to return to New Zealand who've got lots of skills to offer. We want migrants to be attracted here. Do, do you, let me ask this. Do you need $18,000 more a year? Uh, I personally don't. No, OK, great. No, I personally so, don't. So, so what's but the I'm point? telling you, when we get to the election, you'll see a fully costed tax and, and fiscal plan. Do you plan. think most New Zealanders, given, given the cost of living at the moment, most New Zealanders who are fortunate to earn half a million dollars a year need $18,000 more every year at the moment? What I can tell you is our plan, what we've said to you, is we're going to foreshadow that we're mm. going to remove taxes the government's passed. Do they need, do need $18,000 more a year? I, I, the, the reality is we have a ta ta progressive tax system. Wealthier people pay a higher proportion of their income in tax. That's how our system is constructed. There is, what I'd say to you, a short-term well, solution. You're going to change the way it's structured. Though. Well, no, but what I'm saying is there's three, there's three yeah. bits to this, right? The first bit is we're saying a short-term solution in the spirit of you want me to oppose, mm. the government, not just criticise the government, but to propose ideas. Ideas. This is a simple idea, practical, sensible, common sense. Grant Robertson could take it forward in the budget. We've foreshadowed that we'd actually remove taxes that we think mm. have added costs. If you look at the Brightline test and the removal of interest deductibility, the Inland Revenue Department said what, to the government, what, what, don't do it because it will lead to higher rents. What, what, and cost, it has. what cost has it added by putting in that top tax threshold at 39%? What cost has it added? In terms of what do you mean? In terms well, of what you just cost? said, you, you're concerned about the cost that those tax changes have added. So, what, what cost has? No, it added? I'm concerned about inflation and the fact that mm. our tax system isn't adjusted for inflation. That we've actually got a situation where we could bring people back to real. See again, you do, it's, it's, it's very interesting to me that you don't want to talk about the changing of this top tax threshold. If you go onto the National Party website, there is a calculator where you can work out how much you'd save under National's tax changes. Yeah, correct. It very conveniently excludes the changes to the top tax bracket that will give someone like you. An extra eighteen thousand dollars. But a year. Jack, we're not changing. What I'm saying to you, you tr I think you're trying to. Well, I, want these, to say, I mean, I'm going well, to explain. Can I explain? No, no, it to I you? do. I explain it. Let's move on. Yep. Um, most economists say that tax cuts are inflationary, right? You give people money, people want to spend the money. When they want to spend the money, it drives up demand. Voila, inflation. Why are your tax cuts different? Well, they, the point is that Grant Robertson's about to give himself $6 billion, the biggest increase in the budget in the history of New Zealand, mm. right? And all of that's going to be inflationary. That's on top of the $128 billion that we've got. That's $52 billion so more than we had in 2017. Your tax cuts come out of that $6 billion. So you're still spending so, the $6 billion? Correct. So, okay, so, so, our, so our, our why tax, are yours not inflationary? Our tax cuts come out of that. They're about $1.7 billion. Mm. We think it would be a good idea to do these inflation-adjusted tax thresholds. So explain to me why if it's you're not left inflationary. With, uh, because essentially, it's, it's, it's no more inflationary than Grant Robertson's $6 So it's the same, it's still inflationary. Exactly, exactly the same. I would argue to it could be slightly better because New Zealanders may choose to save their money and, and or spend it. Right. Grant Robertson's going to spend it. Okay, so $1.7 billion comes out of that $6 billion uh, operating expenditure. What are you going to cut? What we're saying to you is we're going to go back line by line over the $100 billion of existing expenditure. Mm. I've given you some examples. The, the slow train, the $1.8 billion in Slow train's $100 million. In the yeah, I, I get it. seem to write off that you know, there's several billion dollars and, it, and that's OK. That's not OK in a well, time when New Zealand households... I've asked you... I mean, we don't need to go back to the start of this interview, but, but I, you know, I asked you for, for examples of big spending that lead to inflation and you haven't provided them. The Minister of Finance tells us that the money in that operating expenditure has been signalled for health, for education, for
for housing. So what would you cut? Well, it's high to fund that 1.7 billion. What we're billion. saying to you is we, he's got $6 billion at a time of inflation when the OECD is saying, hey, rein in the spending, when the Reserve Bank governor is saying, hey, mm. listen, I need some help with some fiscal mm. tools and some fiscal discipline. You, we seem to think that just spending hundreds of millions of dollars and billions of dollars and not getting returns for it is, is OK. Actually, we need to make sure that we're getting return for that money and not wasting that money. We would go through line by line, make sure that the existing spend is actually being spent properly. And what we're saying is you've got to cut, start to question any new spending and say, are you putting more mm. fuel on the inflation fire? The Reserve Bank has that dual mandate at the moment. Would you scrap the dual mandate? Yeah, we would. I think we've got to respect the independence of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, but it's now got a dual mandate, which is about price stability, but mm. also about how you know full employment. Uh, and what I'd say to you is it needs to be ruthlessly focused on price stability. We've always felt that it keeps inflation within a 1% to 3% band, and that's the most important thing we've got to do right now. All right. We can all agree on that, right? <laughs> <laughs> OK, we'll be back with Christopher Luxon after the break. And then the government has been accused of introducing co-governance by stealth. Willie Jackson says he's going to be straight up. He will give us the plan shortly. <laughs> Welcome back to Q&A and National Party leader Christopher Luxon. So I want to talk COVID-19. Remember that? <laughs> At the start of December last year, you advocated for the traffic light system to be scrapped and for our border protections to be partially relaxed. Knowing what we know now about Omicron and just how infectious it is, was that a mistake? Well, look, I think the reality that we've struggled with with COVID is that the government did a great job in 2020, I thought, mm. and New Zealand responded incredibly well. But I do think 21 and 22 have been a total shambles, and it's been made up on the fly. Mm. And so the reality for us is that we sit here now in Omicron talking about a traffic light system when I think New Zealanders just need some pretty simple measures of what they need to be doing around masking and isolation and, mm. and things like that. It's been a complication I don't think it's added a lot of value. OK, so uh, back to my question though. Uh, you, uh, you, you advocated for the, for the traffic light system to be scrapped and for our border protections, the international border, to be partially relaxed. Of course, Omicron is incredibly infectious. So mm. looking back at that at the start of December, was that a mistake? Would there be a fit well, hindsight? Well, well, the point I'm trying to make is that you can be locked in on I'm a I'm not 20... asking for your point. I'm asking, no, no. I'm asking for whether or not that was a mistake. You've got to be able to manage dynamically and you've got to be able to manage for the mm. risk that you have in front of you. And the reality is we should go up and down with mitigations and measures and tools. You're still not answering but me. But the reality is we're locked into a mindset of 2020 at that point. You, OK, so, so, so you stand by... Your, your calls to scrap the traffic light system at that time and to partially open up. I think the traffic light system has been horribly confusing. I think we could have communicated to New Zealanders some very simple measures about what they need to be you're doing. Just, you're not giving me a straight answer here. Was it a mistake or not? What I'm giving you is a, an answer to say I think we could communicate some very simple measures rather than having complicated traffic light systems, alert right. level systems, etc. So let's consider, let's play things out a little bit though. Given how infectious Omicron is, if we had taken your advice at the start of December, there is a very high likelihood that New Zealand would have had rampant community spread at about Christmas, New Year. Comfortable with that? Well, as, as I said, you know, the, the point for us, no, we're not comfortable with that. But what I'd say... But that's to, what you advocated for and you just told me it wasn't a mistake. Yeah, but what I'd say to you, Jack, is our issue has been we're not managing the risk of... We haven't been mm. managing the risk of COVID very well. There was a situation last year where we ended up in a very expensive lockdown because mm. we didn't have vaccinations. There was a situation last year where we didn't have any rapid antigen tests. I'm asking about your, your position here. So you've, you've come out and you've, you, and you've, and you've criticised some of the response at the time. You were very clear at the start of December. If we had taken your advice, given how infectious Omicron is, 
New Zealand would have had rampant community spread over the Christmas holidays. And that's on you. I, I, I disagree with you. I think Explain that, to me I, how it would have been well, different. Well, I, I don't want to go through the past because we actually got to manage no, the no, risk no. that we've got I mean, right you're, here You're the now. guy who wants to be Prime Minister. You have to make these dynamic decisions. I agree. I agree with that. But so explain is, to me why it would have been different. Well, the question for me is very simply that we had rapid antigen tests, which were a critical thing that's to have That's not the place. question I'm asking no, no, you. But, but that me, is not the question I'm asking you. What, what I'm asking is why it would have been different. If we'd relaxed those measures, as you advocated for very clearly in the start of December, we would have had rampant community spread over Christmas. Forget Matariki, forget Labor Day, Christmas would have been ruined. Well, the reality was that we did keep those measures in place because we ultimately had to. Because, because we the were government so didn't take your advice. Because they were so unprepared. We had none of the tools that we needed to manage with Omicron. We have the last mover advantage. We mm. see everything happening two months after every other country on Earth. And the bottom line is we had made rapid antigen tests legal. We needed that for Omicron. We knew that. We didn't have that in place. We knew we needed to have boosters rolled out sooner. We didn't have that So, so all, all of the, these were truths at the time, but, but that didn't seem to influence your calls. I mean, you were the one who wanted things to be relaxed. No, that's, that's the, the we, we wanted to have mitigations in place, but there was, there, was, there was relaxation of some of those things that we could have done. We could have mm. had a much clearer set of rules on and, and we would have, if we'd followed you, likely had rampant community spread over Christmas. Right. On Te Ao with Moana this week, you said the Māori Health Authority had to go. But at the same time, maybe even the same day, Dr Shane Riti told Politic that National wouldn't scrap the Māori Health Authority if it wins next year's election. So what, what is your position? So look, our position very clearly is that we don't think the Māori Health Authority, if you ask us in government today, would we be doing this? Absolutely not. Mm. Our healthcare system's imperfect. We get that there's massive inequalities for Māori on health outcomes, mm. and we know we've got to work really hard at it. But creating a separate Māori Health Authority is not the way to do that. We're going to create massive amalgamation Right. more centralisation, more bureaucracy. A government that's already introduced 14,000 bureaucrats at almost $2 billion, we're going to build another competing bureaucracy. We think there's a better way to do it. So, end of 2023, Christopher Luxon, Prime Minister of New Zealand, does he scrap the Māori Health Authority? Then we have a challenge, right? Because what is your last, position? Well, the last what thing, is your position? Our last thing is that we don't think more restructuring of the healthcare system is so exactly what we you wouldn't undo it? Well, I can tell you, the healthcare system is fatigued, despite what the Prime Minister mm. says. It's not actually handling things. It is very stressed. It's very overwhelmed and actually to put it through more restructuring would be very challenging. So, okay, so you, just to be 100% clear, it would be too far down the track well, at that point well, by the, your judgment and, and you wouldn't scrap the Māori health. The great thing is we just don't know, this government doesn't get things done, right, if we're really honest about it. So who knows how far they'll be down I'm the implementation the, please in October me, next well, what year. Is, what is your position? So the position very clearly is we would see where we are in terms of implementation. Right. If, you were, if we were there today, we wouldn't be doing it. If we're there, I have to say we want to be sensitive to that healthcare industry and not put them through massive more restructuring. This is the problem at the moment, right? There seems to be a lot of ambiguity around your positions or the way that you are communicating your positions. There was the kerfuffle over public transport, the drama this week with public holidays. Why are you having such a problem communicating your position to the public? Well, look, I mean, I'm, I'm not a polished career beltway politician, right? I've come from outside the system. I happen to think that's a good thing mm. that people like me should be able to come into politics like this. By my own admission, I've said, look, yep, I could have expressed those things better, but if I take each so of those experience, issues... really? No, if I take each of those issues, there mm. was good rationale for what I was trying to say. We don't want to fund white elephant public transport projects. Mm. We are consciously choosing to put $450 million of extra cost on, and so now's the time 
time for that conversation. Mm. Um, but I also think it's good that you make when you make the mistakes, you say it as you'd got it wrong or you, you could have done it yeah. better. I think that's important. But I think what the country needs is not just more polished communication in the leadership. They actually need someone who gets things done. But, but I mean, you sort of need both, though, don't you? Because well, you if, do. you don't have the, if you don't have the experience to clearly communicate your position, then and maybe the yeah, Māori Health Authority is, the, is, is a good well, example. No, the Māori Health now. Authority is a perfectly good position, which we've been very clear about, saying mm. we don't believe creating two systems and endless bureaucracy is mm. going to lead to better outcomes. The Māori Health Authority, by its own admission, is saying it won't deliver a single improved Māori health outcome mm. for over five years. So if you ask us in government today, would we be doing it? We're opposing that because we say that doesn't make sense. You ask me a practical question of when mm. we get there, will we want to turn the whole healthcare system up again? And you don't know. And, and we don't know. And it depends on how much they've implemented, how, much, how far through the programme so they the are. the ambiguity there, right? Well, but, but I can't tell you how far this government will have implemented. We thought three waters would be up mm. and running, but it's I mean, not Shane up and Beattie running. very clearly said that the government would be too far down the track with the reforms and, that's what and, that, and that you wouldn't be able to and that's what, reverse and, them. And that's what we're saying. But that doesn't mean that we should say, hey, listen, mm. at this point in the formation of this thing, that yeah. we should be discussing it and saying why we don't think it's a good idea. When we get to the other side, we're, what we're saying in the broad set of health reforms, we wouldn't want to put the health sector through massive restructuring again. It's too fatigued, too stressed, right. too overwhelmed. 18 months from the election... What is your path to becoming Prime Minister? Well, it's pretty simple. We have to talk about the things that will build you know, New Zealand and mm. make it a much better place. At the heart of that is a much stronger economy. The reality is if you want better healthcare, if you want better education, if we want better infrastructure, we actually have to make sure that we have a strong um, economy at, the, at mm. the base of it. But, but, but from a political strategy perspective, I mean, the, the centre-right block, if we can call it that, with National and ACT, even though it might be enjoying stronger polling numbers than just a couple of months ago, still lags behind Labour, the Greens and the Māori Party, who have said explicitly after their last experience with the national government that they wouldn't be supporting national come 2023. So, so, so how do you get in government? Who, what, what, what friends do you Well, have? what we have to do is we have to focus on the bits that we can control. And as you know, New Zealanders will have seen the National Party has been through a challenging period. Hopefully over the last five months they've got a sense that we've reset it and we're very focused on the future. A lot of that is us actually mm. building a strong economy so that we have an ability to be able to make the investments we need socially Grow and the environmentally. Base. Yep. So a lot of what we have to do is oppose the government and mm. we try and do that in a critical way but also a constructive way. We also want to propose ideas. We've got new members now you know, on new portfolios mm. building the policy over the next 18 months that will take fully to the election. It'll be fully, you know, there'll be a lot of mm. policy detail. It won't be like us showing up with no ideas and forming 230 working groups. We're going to be ready to go from day one. So it's really about us building back trust with the New Zealand people, demonstrating that we have the team, demonstrating that we have the ideas. Mm. And if we do that job, Right, we start to look like an alternative government in waiting. Very good. Thank you for your time. Appreciate Chris it. Thanks, Jack. Stay there, Ryan. Don't stand up, otherwise you'll um, end up becoming a YouTube meme or something. <laughs> if you want to get in contact with the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us, find us on Twitter or on Facebook. Coming up, Māori leaders have had a chance to respond to hear pua pua. So will it mean more co-governance in Aotearoa? A contentious issue and the minister responsible for what comes next. Hoki Maiti, we welcome back to Q&A. Water infrastructure mightn't be sexy, but in a warming climate and with an infrastructure deficit, it is a critical area of concern for New Zealand's future. At the top of Te Waipounamu, the South Island, there's a project that illustrates some of the challenges engineers and councils are facing. The Waimea Dam is expected to be completed later this year, but it is over budget and way over time. A Nelson-based One News reporter, Jess Roden, with this exclusive look. 
sitting high above the Lee Valley, the Waimea Dam isn't far off completion. It's hoped this massive structure will secure the water supply of the region for the next hundred years. You can see the spillways around about two-thirds built now. The embankment's complete, the concrete face has been built and the parapet wall's not far away. At more than 50 metres above river level, it's the largest public dam to be built in 30 years. Waimea Water tasked with its completion. We've had to sort of pull people out of retirement to help us. Um, there's a lot of uh, relearning and, and re-engineering going on. It's hard to imagine at the moment, but very soon, in fact later on this year, this whole valley will be filled with water. The reservoir will eventually hold up to 13 million cubic metres of water. That's 13 billion litres. But getting to this point has been more challenging than anyone anticipated. Geology was being, it's different to what we expected. Uh, whereas we'd expected a nice, firm, hard sandstone, we've got a very crumbling sort of argillite. Once construction began, it was clear the earth being dug into wasn't what was expected. It's the main reason for the cost of blowout. Gosh, when it was first mooted way back in, uh, I guess, 2003-ish, I think the very first budgets were around 30 to 50 million. So, and now the estimated cost is 185, so um, it's changed a lot. Um, the, key, the key figure is really 105, which is what it was when we finally decided to go ahead. I can assure ratepayers that we have worked our backsides off um, and en engineered as hard as we can to keep the cost um, as low as possible. COVID-19 and supply chain issues not helping costs either. The project now well behind Schedule 2. The Mayor says $185 million won't be the end of it. I'm expecting to uh, receive news of a further increase at some point in the next few months. The dam is located up the back of Brightwater in the Waimea Plains, about a 30-minute drive from Richmond. It was first mooted around 20 years ago, sparked by hot summers, rivers like this almost running dry. Irrigators becoming a driving force behind the dam, concerned water consents were oversubscribed. It means that um, the consents for irrigation had been over allocated and so uh, uh, there wasn't enough water to go around uh, and it also meant that we were under restrictions on a regular basis. It's hard to describe exactly just how much of a divisive issue the Waimea Dam has been over the years. There were numerous warnings about the potential cost blowout and the geology of the area. The council itself at one point even deciding not to go ahead with the dam because of that potential cost to ratepayers. In 2018 though it was signed off as a joint venture between the Tasman District Council and local irrigators. It's really important that irrigation reliability is is there because I mean you spend all year growing a high value crop uh, and then for it to fall over at the last minute because you can't finish it off because of irrigation restrictions uh, it doesn't work for anyone. Irrigators argue it's not just about them. The dam is in the region and ratepayers best interests. At the end of the day it's about water reliability uh, and making sure that they can turn the tap on and know that they've got uh, they've got water when they want it. Not everyone agrees though. I've been uh, investigating the dam for over seven years. Murray Dawson has been a staunch opponent, part of many community protests over the years. I have a little phrase, it's not needed and it won't work. He thinks the dam was built in the wrong place and the case for it has been misrepresented. 
think in general what's happened is the dam promoters have looked at best case scenarios everywhere. Among his other criticisms is poor public consultation. Ratepayers lumped with the result. I think the biggest impact is this, and this is, this is important. This is going to crimp capital expenditure for decades. The council will own 51% of the dam, irrigators the rest, but the actual funding is complex, and every time costs go up, who pays the extra is renegotiated. The longest council loan is 40 years. Currently the responsibility to pay the bills remains with the council. Uh, then the council has to determine how that's going to be recovered from various um, different parties. Yeah, we are paying our fair share and some. In Richmond, it's hard to find anyone with anything positive to say about the dam. As a ratepayer, it just seems we're spending more and more money. Where's it going to end? Probably in the future one day it will be a good idea, but at the moment it doesn't look like. Well, they should pull their finger out. Some say a high-level, independent inquiry is needed. I think there are many lessons to learn here which are wider than Tasman. One lesson most agree on is how difficult projects like this are, particularly for small ratepayer bases. New Zealand, I, I think personally, is a, is a tough place to build infrastructure. Um, you know, we probably don't have this, the, the, the fiscal or the regulatory framework that other countries enjoy. And it's not clear whether the government's three waters reforms will help. I don't think it's necessarily going to make the project easier to deliver. It may make the decision making around whether or not they go ahead and some of those political challenges that the current system uh, has slightly easier to work through. A huge project at a huge cost to a small region. Jess Roden with that report. After the break, an interview we have been trying to bring you for ages. Willie Jackson will tell us why he reckons co-governance is nothing to fear. Then, France is hours away from hitting the polls. What would it mean for all of us if a far-right politician became one of the most powerful leaders in Europe? We welcome back. This morning we are continuing our focus on the debate over co-governance in New Zealand. Act leader David Seymour says the concept undermines a one-person, one-vote democratic model. Co-governance is democratically unaccountable, it's bureaucratic, it actually stops us delivering the services we require to give people more equal opportunity. Willie Jackson is the Minister for Māori Development and is with us this morning. Kia ora. Kia ora, Jack. First of all, let me just acknowledge what a difficult few weeks it has been for your Thanks, family. Jack. Thank, so, thank um, you, Jack. Kia it's ora. great to see you here. What is co-governance? Well, we're talking about shared decision-making here. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a partnership. This nonsense that Seymour's going on about, this is not the first-past-the-post system uh, that we had before. This is New Zealand 2022. He's a beneficiary of MMP. So MMP's about diversity. MMP's about minorities mm. working together. That's how co-governance is set up. He, he's actually a beneficiary of the, the actual system that he rubbishes. So I'm really disappointed with the way he's, 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 well, he's put that. Can I just say, yeah. New Zealand got nothing. New Zealanders have nothing to fear with co-governance, Jack. We want to work with 
um, our Pākehā brothers and sisters. This is not about a Māori takeover, as Seymour would have you believe. This is about working in partnership with, with Pākehā, and I, and I think that's a good thing. I mean, let's just be 100% clear. MMP is not co-governance. Mixed member proportionate system is not co-governance. David Seymour is there elected through a democratic system. He's, that's right, but, but um, co-governance and co-management are based on the principles of MMP. The principles of MMP are about well, diversity, right. are about minorities having a say. This is not the old first-past-the-post system that we used to have. But what you, you have saying, to work, you you have have to work what, what, what you were saying is that co-governance as proposed under, say, the Three Waters reforms, right. is not strictly one person, one vote. What I'm saying is, of course, um, it's one per we have one person, one vote. But the whole... No, no, no. The, under the, that structure, is it one person, one abso vote? Absolutely. How? One person, one vote is, 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 a, is a given. What I'm no, saying... No, 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 it's not. No, explain under Three Waters, explain to me how I have the same level of representation as a non-Māori person well, Ma as you have. We're talking three waters yep, now. Yeah, let's talk about three, three waters. Three waters is a, is a good idea because Māori are having an opportunity to contribute. This is not a Māori... That's seat. not what I'm asking, no, no, what well, I'm asking well, you well, is to well, explain well, how it's democratic. No, well, no. Well, <laughs> well, well, democracy's changed, Jack. That's so, so it's not a one-person, one, person, one no, vote? No, no, no. It's one person, one vote, but it's also... Explain how it's one person, but, one but vote. Because one person gets one vote, but also... One person gets one vote, right. but also they work on under the lines of consensus. We're in a consensus-type democracy now. This is not a majority democracy Minister, anymore. First past the post is finished. Right. Now we have to work in tandem with groups and okay. act or a beneficiary of that. OK, so the structure for Three Waters <coughs> and the Three Waters management would give mana whenua representatives 50% representation in appointing the boards that then manage those resources. You are Māori... I am non-Māori. Yeah. If Three Waters goes ahead as proposed, do we have the same representation? Uh, abs well, absolutely. How? Well, well Māori, the, if you know the treaty, and I believe you know the treaty, do not you? So, so what's Article... Under, what, under, what's, under that, what's under what's that Article 3 of the treaty Equity. Say? Equity. So this gives Māori an opportunity in terms of an equitable right. That's right. not a... Right. Okay, okay. So, that, so hang, that's, not, that's not a superior right. That's an equitable right. Why right. would you not buy into Māori so, no, working in terms of the Three Waters? I'm not asking if, if we have anything to fear, because that, that may be a perfectly le legitimate point. What I'm asking is if it's democratic. And well, that's... That, but, 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 but Seymour's criticism is googly googly got, and you know that because the the nature of democracy, as you said in the mm. interview, Jack, has changed. This is not this is a right. this is a democracy now where you take into account the the needs of people, their diverse needs, mm. minority needs. It's not the tyranny of the majority anymore. That's what this democracy is set so up. So what on. I said to Seymour, that, that is what that's what. Um, co-management and co-governance is about. It's not about, it's nothing to fear, Jack. So, so that again, I, I, I'm not concerned as to whether or not it's something to fear, I'm concerned as to whether or not it's democratic. No, no, and but, so the but, argument but, but, I put but, to but, David Seymour yeah. is, is that maybe democracy needs broader parameters, well, well, maybe the, uh, that we should, we should measure democracy by more than just a one-person, one-vote well, measure. But now, just let me finish. Now, what David Seymour says is, no, democracy should be measured on that fundamental point. In a democracy... Everyone has the same level of representation, regardless of their ethnic background. It is one person, one vote. And what you are saying to me is that actually under David Seymour's definition of democracy, co-governance is not strictly democratic. What, what, what I'm saying is democracy has changed. David Seymour is perpetrating this view that oh, this one, there's, one, there's one person, one mm. vote, that's it. But it's, it's, more than, it's more than that. 
It's about diversity. It's just, what, what, are, what are minorities going through? It's time to work together. It's time for groups to work together. What I'm saying is Seymour is a beneficiary of MMP. MMP meant you had to work together. Uh, co-governance and co-partnership is the same thing. And he supported that. The ACT Party supported that with the Auckland Māori Statutory Board. Uh, they did that in 2011. Why? Because they wanted Māori to work with Pākehā. He's a hypocrite in terms of what he's in, what, in terms of what he's saying. Why does the government want more co-governance? Uh, we want well, one co-governance has been around for many, many yeah, years. But as, why does as, the government as, want more? Well, it's been around for many years because it's been really beneficial, particularly in the natural resources uh, area. In terms of why we want more. We want more because we want to close the gap in terms of Māori and Pākehā. In every area, Jack, in mm. every area in society, whether it's education, employment, um, in the socio-economic area, right. Māori lag behind. In fact, the only area we don't lag behind in is in skin cancer. So in every area of society, we want to try and close the gap. So why wouldn't you... Now, let me finish. Why wouldn't you have a co-governance, co-management set-up? It's been successful in the in natural resources area. It's but, different but, for but, public but, services, but, though, but, isn't but it? Yeah, but co-management... Management I mean, you, you, you're, referencing, you're referencing what are essentially treaty settlements, well, and, and right. I, think, I think many of the parties would argue, involved would argue that they have been relatively successful, perhaps with a couple of exceptions so far, but what we're talking about is broader right. public services right. affecting all New Zealanders. Right. And, and, and I want to know, is co-governance a way for the Crown to honour its obligations under Te Tiriti Yes, Waitangi. absolutely, it's a way to right. honour our equity, our obligations under the treaty. And, and to allow for Māori to realise... You're, you're not letting me have a say, Jack. Come on, give me a shot. You gave Luxon yeah. plenty of room. <laughs> Did I? Now, now in terms of co-governance, <laughs> look, you talked about natural resources... Co-governance is not just about the sun and the mountains mm. and the sky and the water, as Seymour wants us to talk, uh, uh, wants us to think about. Yeah. Co-governance is about everyday life. Why wouldn't you have a couple of Māori on the local trust, uh, local Māori? Let me finish, Jack, on the Māori Education Board. If you want to uplift that community, why wouldn't you have a, a couple of Māori in an employment area? I work with good Pākehā people mm. in the north. Mm. We put in targeted programs. We work together. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you implore a a co-governance, co-management strategy and an everyday sense so that we can uplift the statistics of Māori everywhere so that all New Zealanders can benefit. Why, why wouldn't you do that? Because in the eyes of some, yeah. it isn't democratic. Okay, so, so what we have to uh, say, and people like you need to say, is you've got nothing to fear in New Zealand. The Article 3 right that, that we're pushing is not a superior right. You mm. see, this is what Seymour runs. He runs the line, or this is a superior right. Mm. Maoris are getting what you shouldn't be getting. You know and I know Article, the Article 3 right is an equitable right. It gives Māori the opportunity in terms of equity. He keeps perpetuating a lie mm. that Māori have got some superior right. I don't think it's superior if you die seven years earlier or eight years earlier. I don't think it's a, 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 a superior right, right. If, if you're unemployed three times more than, than Pākehā. I don't think it's a superior right if our education is miles behind Pākehā. This is about equity, and I'm really pleased with how we're going, and this is an opportunity okay. to, to LA New Zealanders, and you should be doing your job, Jack. You know, there's nothing to be scared of. I'm doing my job, We Willie. want to work with Pākehā New yeah. Zealand. <laughs> You've just released uh, the iwi feedback for He Pua Pua, yeah. which... Let's be clear, was a discussion of document is not government policy, etc., etc., etc. I'm glad you're clear. Yeah. Um, Seymour's not. But, I, I mean, f did you write the press release? 
Oh, what a great press release, wasn't it? I, I have never read <laughs> eight paragraphs of information with such little clarity. I, don't, I got to the end of it and I thought, I have absolutely no idea what's happening. I but that's, that's by the by. You had a, a very low education. <laughs> OK, Jackie, uh, well, I went, through, I went through some of the response from, from, from Iwi. And so I just want to get a couple of things. Yep. I know that you are working on the declaration at the moment. Would you, as Minister, support the establishment of a Māori education authority? Um, that's something at the moment I, 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 that I would, you know... Like, personally? Per, personally, I like the idea of um, uh, different groups, different right. setups. I supported the idea of a Māori health authority. And so Māori education well, authority, some, as that, recommended? Well, well, what's well, your well, position? Well, 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 my position is we, you do anything you can to uplift the needs of your people. So does and that include a Māori, health, well, uh, Māori well, we, education we, we, authority? We need to go through that, but I would, uh, in principle, I would probably support that. Okay. Uh, one of the suggestions, and this is just mm. from the feedback from Iwi, was the abolishment of prisons. Yeah. Would you support that? No. Okay. My See, there's a clear answer. No, I wouldn't. My uncle Moana Jackson went yeah. down that track and I used to have some wonderful debates with him. Yeah, OK. Um, well, this is a debate that uh, your wonderful uncle, um, may he rest in peace, would I'm sure love to have engaged Brilliant. with. Here's, here's, a line, here's a line from uh, the feedback from Iwi. Quote, An overarching theme and issue of concern clearly emerged. Strengthening the tinoranga teratanga of tangata whenua was the most consistent yes. matter raised. But it is ultimately a binary, mm. is it not? There is no way to fully honour tino ranga tiratanga or mana motuhake without that coming at the representative expense of non-Māori. No, no, that's not true. And you know that's not true. You're just, you're just asking, you're, you're, you're asking that question is because you're an interviewer. Uh, no, tino ranga tiratanga can be realised in, in different forms. It's already been realised. Mm. Kohangareo is an example of that, where our kids are, are speaking the language. Māori radio is an example of that. Māori mm. TV is mm. an example of that. True tino rangatira, that mm. my Uncle Sid and Uncle Moana used to talk about, was Māori running everything. Right. That's not a reality in terms of New Zealand today. But you're not talking to someone who wants to take the whole table over. Mm. You know, there are, there are groups, my, my, my Uncle Moana would say to me, nephew, what, why, why are we partnering up? We yeah, own this yeah, country. Yeah. I just, I just want to get to the table and work with my Pākehā brothers and, and mm. sisters and play a part. That should not scare anyone. Mm. That's why we've got to stop the scare tactics that okay. Sino keeps running. We'll, we'll, we'll stop the scare tactics around this. A, a bill has been considered by the Māori Affairs Select Committee that would provide an equal number of Māori seats as general seats in the Rotorua Lakes District Council. Do you support that? <clears throat> No, I support um, David Parker, our, our Attorney General, who's come out and said there's been a few mistakes. Look, along this journey and along this way... didn't say there's a few mistakes. He said, I have concluded the bill appears to limit the right to be free from discrimination. Right. He well, says it's undemocratic. Well, well then I support... Um, I, oh, I've, sp I've spoken to him. And um, obviously there's been some mistakes made. But let's be very clear, that's not, a, that's not our bill. That, was, that, was come from the, that came from the council. Tamati Coffee took it up. And, uh, and look, it's driven by the invisibility that Māori have at council level, you know? Māori have been absolutely invisible. That's why Nanaia Mahuta put mm. up Māori wards. Brilliant. And, and you've got a, maybe an over-enthusiastic council down there. Wonderful me in terms of Stevie Chadwick. And, and, and over-enthusiastic over Māori caucus, perhaps? No, no, not at all. We're a very responsible one. That's why I say, well done, Minister Parker. That's why we've got a great Attorney-General. We're, 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 uh, we're not too big to think, oh, well, maybe we made a few mistakes here. the sort here. of thing that you should have checked she's, beforehand? Well, I mean, he's the Attorney-General. Tamati yeah. Coffey isn't, and he, done a, yes. he, he, did a, he did a brilliant job. Well, Tamati do, Tamati's mm. doing a great job too. Tamati's advocating for his mm. people mm. who have been invisible at council level. Were there a few mistakes? Well, obviously... Our Attorney-General said that, uh, and, we'll, and we'll cross... Uh, 
we'll cross that off and we'll, we'll look to reshape things, but let's, let's, let's go back to the, the, the original point. Māori have been invisible at council level. That's what was driving mm -hmm. them down mm -hmm. there. Well done to them. They might just have to go back to the drawing board. These things happen, Jack. Hey, thank you so much Kia for coming in. It's good to see you. Good to see you healthy. Thank you. And um, no doubt we will continue this conversation. Get me conversation. in here to Seymour. I want to, I want Seymour in here. We'll see if we can arrange <laughs> with your bosses. Stick around. Q&A is back after the break. Hoki mai, welcome back to Q&A. France goes to the polls tonight in a presidential election that could have dramatic implications for Europe and the rest of the world. Incumbent Emmanuel Macron is once again facing a challenge in the runoff from Marine Le Pen, whose party has traditionally been a bastion of the far right. A few hours ago, we spoke to Paris-based journalist Megan Clement, and I started by asking how close the contest is shaping up to be. So the race has opened up a bit uh, in recent days, and we've seen Macron um, blasting a bit of trail ahead of Marine Le Pen uh, at the moment. So the last polling saw him about 12 percentage points ahead. It was quite tight before the first round, uh, so we'll see. What are the issues that are likely to decide the election? It's uh, definitely an election that's being fought uh, partially over the cost of living uh, here in France. That's something Marine Le Pen has been campaigning very, very hard on. Uh, and it's, it's a situation that's sort of being um, exacerbated by the war in Ukraine. Uh, so we're seeing things like food prices go up and that kind of thing. So that's definitely front of mind for a lot of people. Uh, the Ukraine war itself uh, is is playing uh, quite uh, strongly in this election, as you can imagine, um, taking place against a background of war in Europe. Uh, and I think those issues have been a bit of a surprise because many thought going into, into this election that we might be talking more about these eternal questions of immigration, integration, uh, and so often here in France, religion. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, that name Le Pen is synonymous with the French far right and has been for decades, both the current candidate Marine Le Pen and her father Jean-Marie Le Pen. What does it say about French politics and French society that for two elections in a row now, Marine Le Pen has made the runoff? Yes, well, Macron said last time that this would be this would never happen again, and here we are. Um, I think it says a couple of things. Uh, I think it says that um, far-right sentiments are strong in this country. Uh, Marine Le Pen was not the only far-right candidate in the first round of, of voting. Um, and indeed, you know, if, if, if the far-right had, uh, had united behind her instead of being split off, we might be seeing a different situation now. So it shows that the far-right is strong. It shows that there is an anti-immigrant sentiment in this country. It shows that there is an anti-Muslim sentiment in this country. But it also shows the collapse of the traditional political parties here in France. So what we saw remarkably in the first round was that both the traditional right-wing party and the traditional left-wing party completely collapsed. They both got less than 5% each. So the political landscape has completely changed. And what we're seeing now is centre-right versus far-right. I mean, it is fascinating in a country like France that has clearly identified societal ideals such as liberty that a candidate like Marine Le Pen, who advocates for Muslim women to be banned from wearing headscarves in public, can do so well. But what does it say about Emmanuel Macron and the problems he has had connecting with the public? 
he has had problems connecting. Uh, the the Achilles heel of uh, Emmanuel Macron is that people see him as quite arrogant. Uh, Marine Le Pen says he's sort of contemptuous of, of the French public. Uh, he's seen as a president of the rich, as a president of the elites, uh, and out of touch uh, with, with the needs of everyday French people. Uh, we hear a lot about the people who struggle to make ends meet at the end of the month here. Um, and so that is the reputation that dogs him. Uh, and he has a history of saying um, saying things that, that, that don't make him come across as a man of the people, let's put it that way. So he told someone once, so you can just go across the street and get a job if you want a job. Uh, so he, he is, I mean, there is a, a vein of French society that really detests Emmanuel Macron for these reasons. Um, but that is just a section of, of society and sort of paradoxically, he has polled quite well throughout his presidency for a French president, uh, I would say. France is the second most powerful country in Europe. What would it mean for the situation in Ukraine if Marine Le Pen becomes president? I mean, it's a uh, game changer doesn't even begin to cover it. Uh, Marine Le Pen would like to take France out of NATO. Uh, she no longer campaigns for a Frexit to leave the European Union. However, she has a range of measures that she wishes to bring in, which critics say will essentially take uh, France out, and certainly she wants to reduce France's contributions to the EU. Uh, so it would be it would be enormous. Uh, it would overturn everything uh, our understanding of Europe as it is, and it would certainly complicate the situation. Traditionally, far right parties have struggled to attract women voters. How popular has Marine Le Pen been with women in France? She has been on a campaign over the years of what we call here in France de-demonization, and part of that is to feminize her image more. So she has uh, made a big deal about how much she loves her cats. She recently got a cat breeding license, and so will be pictured with her cats as much as possible. She's very much softened herself, feminized herself, and that has seen um, an uptick in support for, uh, from women. So in 2012, uh, the far right had about 19% support, uh, and this year it was 34. So it remains to be seen how many women will actually vote for Marine Le Pen tomorrow. Um, but she has certainly put a lot of work in, and you know she says she is a feminist, mm. uh, which she did not say before. So she's put a lot of work into into getting into getting women's vote. You say the polls have opened up fractionally over the last few days, and that Emmanuel Macron is probably the favourite going into this runoff, but Brexit and Donald Trump's election cast a long shadow over France. Can you give us a sense as to just how significant it would be if Marine Le Pen is elected president? Oh, it would be... Um, it is one of those things that still feels unimaginable. Um, she has said that she intends to basically govern by referendum. She would like to hold a referendum that gives uh, what she calls nationality preference to people who are born French citizens. So even if you've become a French citizen, uh, you're like me, you're an immigrant to this country and you become French, you can still be disadvantaged in the job market uh, and such. So these are really, really extreme positions that she has. Um, as you've mentioned, banning the headscarf in, in the street, uh, which no country in the world has ever done before. Um, so it, I think it would be a very, very dark time for France um, and a very scary time for minorities for uh, Muslims, for immigrants, it, it, I think it will be, be very tough. 
That is journalist Megan Clement. Cool Matu, that's Q&A for this week. Stick around for Marae shortly. From the Q&A team, thanks for watching. And nā mihi kia koutou ngā karere. Thanks for your messages. Hey tērā wiki, we will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.